Hi, I'm Bill Arnold. Thank you for listening to this podcast. There are many more podcasts available at MyFaithRadio.com. Your support makes this possible. Thank you. And a warm welcome to the afternoon show. I'm Bill Arnold, and I'm looking forward to this hour because I get to spend it with my friend, Dr. Mark Muska, who's a retired Bible professor and scholar living the big life now in Sioux Falls. Mark, welcome. Hey, Bill. Good to hear you. Uh, How is retirement going, even though you still work more than ever? Well, I don't know. I was just taking a nap. Yeah, I figured. Do you have like a Hawaiian shirt on right now? No. <laughs> I'm not going that far. Okay, good. So glad to have you with me. It is Ask the Professor, so any question you have, we will do, Mark will do his best to answer. 877-933-2484. Send questions fast and furious. Send them over, 877-933-2484. You know, what I love about uh, studying God's Word, Mark, is it's there's no bottom. It never ends, and every time you go through a text— you sometimes, because it's living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, you see things in it and you go, whoa, i got to take some time on this verse or two and try to re-examine what it's trying to say and what it means. Isn't that fun? Yep. Is there uh, anything thank better? You very, thank you very much, God, the third person, the Holy Spirit, because he's the one that's doing that. He's the only one that's going to illuminate, isn't he? Yep. Yeah. So one of the verses that I wanted to kind of kick around with you to get things started as we wait for other questions to come in is in Mark chapter 11. There are these two, or let's see, two verses that I find fascinating, starting in verse 12, 13, and 14. So three verses. The next day, as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry, seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf. He went to find out if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves because it was not the season for figs. Then he said to the tree, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say it. Mm -hmm. Now, let's just not pick on the tree for a minute because it's got its leaves on it, but there's no fruit, and it says it's not in season. So is it fair for him to be cursing the tree if if the tree is not in season for fruit? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I don't know if you can be fair or unfair to trees. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. Talk about that for a while. But uh, otherwise, it's a very perplexing passage. Uh, is It seems as like Jesus is being vindictive towards something that this is its nature, not to have fruit during this time of the year. So, Is it uh, relative to Israel at all? Was well, that's— Il, Was Il, Israel symbolic of the—was the fig tree symbolic of Israel? Yes, and that's true. You're going to find that with both olive tree and fig tree in the scriptures, that there is an analogy made uh, for the nation at times. And that's where a lot of scholars go. Uh, I don't like to spiritualize texts or allegorize them, Bill, if I don't have to. And uh, the rule of thumb that I think is uh, is uh, helpful is to say to yourself, uh, if a passage makes sense straightforwardly, Uh, literally interpret it that way. Don't go fishing off into these allegorical strands out there because you're only limited by your imagination if you do that. Mm -hmm. 
But then if a passage seems to be uh, something that isn't, it isn't making sense, it, it isn't reasonable, uh, then we open the door to this. And it may be, I mean, uh, this uh, in Mark 11, this is where Jesus comes into Jerusalem and uh, uh, all hell is going to break loose against him here and it's going to end up with him being crucified. And so I see this very possibly that Jesus is using this as a metaphor or an allegory of the fruitlessness of Israel and uh, they are going to come under very harsh uh, response of God to their rejection of their Messiah. Mm -hmm. And this episode with the fig tree is also connected to the cleansing of the temple Mm -hmm. in the book of Mark. So this is happening uh, a day apart. Yes. So like I said, things are going to be really, really uh, uh, accelerated or inflamed. I don't think it's much different than what we're seeing in that part of the world right now. You know, you just feel like if the shoe drops here, that things are going to really go out of control. There's so much uh, hatred and emotion going on. And uh, that's very much the tone of what happens when Jesus comes uh, and and he's going to die here. Mm -hmm. Mark, do some of the Gospels not uh, go chronologically? I mean, now in this account, we've got Jesus cleansing the temple at the end of his ministry, and in other Gospels, we have him cleansing the temple at the beginning of his ministry. Mm -hmm. Well, he may have done this a couple different times. Okay. So we have to keep the door open for that. But I don't think we can hold the Gospels to a strict chronology. Uh, Matthew, in particular, seems to uh, mix a chronological ordering of things with a thematic ordering of things. So he will follow a certain theme through and then retrace his steps chronologically and pick up the narrative where he left off with it. So uh, it, it can really make you scratch your head when you look at the three synoptic gospels in particular, Bill. Uh, synoptic means to see together with. Uh, the Matthew, Mark, and Luke have very many uh, uh, common passages and common events where there's uh, rep- repetition in them in quite a few places, but there's also unique material in the, all three of them as well. Sometimes Mark and Luke will have something and Matthew completely ignores it. Other times it will be Matthew and Mark that have something and Luke leaves it out. Or Luke uh, uh, addresses something and Matthew and Mark leave it out. And so uh, they, they were obviously of accomplishing different purposes by doing that. And chronology, maybe that's the way to put it. In their purposes, a chronology was not a number one priority for them to mm-hmm. get things r- related in a strict chronological order. Yeah, because we get used to understanding or reading or discovering something in a certain order. And so when we when we see things that don't seem to be in the proper order, we start to go, huh, I wonder what's going on there. So right. no, I appreciate that. Well, so, you got to remember that the first goal of these uh, gospel writers wasn't to write some historical narrative. It is historical, but they've got much bigger fish to fry right. than telling some historical story of the life of Jesus. There's much more important themes that they are addressing. Yeah. Dr. Mark Muska is my guest, which means it's Ask the Professor. So whatever question you have... I know you have one. Send it over, 877-933-2484. 
Here's a question, Mark. What does Ephesians chapter 6 mean when it says that we will judge the angels? Why would the angels need to be judged? Oh, that's uh, the, uh, I think we have to remember that there are two different categories of angels. There are the elect angels, or in Sunday school, you call them the good angels. And then there are the fallen angels, and we call them demons, uh, unclean spirits, uh, the uh, the host of Satan, you know, various words for that. And so uh, they will be evaluated. Uh, they uh, Angels are moral beings, and so there is a moral accountability for them just as the, there is for uh, the human race. That's uh, very interesting. Thank you for that. All right, here's another question. Are all people saints who are believers in Jesus? And if so... What is the difference between believers on earth and those who are given sainthood? Okay, well, that's going to get into one particular denomination, uh, the Roman Catholic Church, which uh, canonizes or recognizes uh, certain people in uh, church history as being exceptional. Uh, For sports fans out there, this is like the... uh, the Christian Hall of Fame. So you have people like Francis of Assisi that was recognized to live an extraordinary life and really had an effect on the church and the world. And so he's been canonized as a saint. Uh, So you got St. Francis. In fact, there is a priestly order called the Franciscans that are named after him. And so uh, the Roman church will canonize them in that type of a way. The scriptures uses the word saint much broader to say that this is an acceptable term for anyone who has put their faith in the gospel. The Holy Spirit has regenerated them. They are born again to a new life, and uh, they, uh, they belong to Christ the, the word saint uh, comes from this idea of being sanctified or being made holy or consecrated. And that carries with it the idea that we have been, we are now different. We are separated from what we once were. And that there's a whole bunch of ways that's true. Uh, we don't have this old nature dominating us anymore. We, our, our very nature has been changed because of the work of the Spirit. We are not, uh, we are separated out from the world as well that that uh, falls in line with the, the meaning of the word church. Uh, the church. The idea of the church is to be called out of the general population. The church is the group that belongs to Christ. And so they've been separated out from the world in that sense. And so uh, the, the word sanctified or holy or saint uh, is used broadly in the scriptures, not only to describe God himself, but to also describe uh, those of us who are followers. Uh, Peter makes this case over in uh, uh, First Peter. Uh, I love what he says here uh, in uh, chapter 1, verse 14, 1 Peter 1, 14, he says, Obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior, because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. So this is, this is, this is the uh, expanse of those who are followers of Christ, who put their faith in the gospel. Mm-hmm. 
Mark, in Romans 3.10, it says, you know, no one is righteous, no, not one. And in Romans 3.23, it says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory. Yeah, that's uh, great news, isn't it? That just makes you feel like shouting hallelujah. <laughs> I don't, I don't <laughs> think so. You know, that that's a very much a slap in the face, isn't it? A uh, reality. It's a reality, are. though. And there's so many people that 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 think that they uh, by their 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 good person attitude is going to get them over the uh, over the line, and that's going to be all it takes. Uh, I'm a good enough guy. I had a conversation right. today with a guy at the gym and he was, uh, you know, almost in a near fatal motorcycle accident. And I thought, well, that's kind of a wake up call. And, and he's, he's still kind of, uh, pushing against, uh, you know, having a, a more serious conversation about his eternal reality. Yeah, that's uh, something like that can have a, a way of waking somebody up oh, yeah, to, to their mortality that we we have no a future guaranteed to us, not even in the next hour. And so uh, that's important. But uh, what you're talking about, Bill, is this whole thing about the brownie point system. Yes, exactly. And the eternal scales that weigh us out. And if our good works outweigh our bad works, then into heaven we go. Yeah. If our bad works outweigh our good works, uh, then not so good who are separated from God forever. And then if it's too close to call, we just throw up our hands. We don't know what to say. So uh, this uh, is contradictory to what you're reading there. And it's not just in Romans 3. Uh, Paul is explaining in detail in the first 11 chapters of Roman uh, Romans, he's explaining the gospel to these Romans. Why is he doing that? Well, he says in chapter one, he's never been to Rome with the gospel. And as an apostle, he's concerned that they've got the true message. So he's going to give it to them. And my response to that is, thank you very much, Paul. It's one of the hallmark sections of the scripture explaining what the gospel is. But he starts out in Romans 1.18 by describing, and he goes almost all the way through chapter three of explaining the hopelessness of humanity because of sin, we are separated from God, and we can't do a blooming thing about it ourselves. We need help. And that's what he addresses then in the rest of chapter 3 uh, through chapter 5, that but God now has done something for us, being rich in mercy. He's caused us to be born again. So uh, this is something that uh, you're right to say there's a whole lot of excuse-making. The one I, I, I used to have fun with my students, and I'd say, what are some of the most common excuses we make as human beings about our sin? You know, there's the herd thing. You know, you're, we're all a bunch of cows. You know, mm-hmm. well, everybody else is doing it, and so that's okay for me to do it. Or uh, I'm a pretty good guy overall, and so you know, this, this is. A, or I didn't know it was wrong, or I couldn't help myself, or Flip Wilson, the devil made me do it. Yeah, you know? right. I mean, you've got all these excuses we can use, and uh, hopefully, uh, this fellow that you talked with in the gym and others, they're going to come to grips with the fact of it's really bad news. We are sinful, separated from God, and absolutely helpless before him. That is really bad news, but I've got really good news that Jesus has done for you what you couldn't do for yourself. And so put your trust in him and depend on him to forgive your sins and not to act like you haven't sinned. That's that's the glory of the gospel. Mm-hmm. Dr. Mark Muska is my guest, so it's Ask the Professor time. Whatever questions you have, Mark will do his very best to answer, 877-933-2484. 
Again, 877-933-2484. After a short break, I'll be back with Mark. We want to pray for you. We all need prayer. We would love to pray for you. The Faith Radio team is serious about prayer, and we pray for specific listener requests every week. Share your prayer request with us anonymously and securely on our website at myfaithradio.com. Welcome to the show. Dr. Mark Musk is my guest. Ask the Professor is the segment. So let me know what you have for Mark. 877-933-2484. Just got a very nice comment from someone that uh, said that I am just driving home from work and I love your show. That means so much to me. So thank you for that comment. All right, Mark, uh, here's a question. Do all medians get their seeing from the demonic? What makes someone a witch or warlock Warlock in today's world. Well, that uh, that's a, a, a question that has a couple different components to it. Uh, the, we usually call this thing of mediums or uh, witches, warlocks, uh, uh, magicians, all this kind of thing uh, as part of the occult. And uh, the word occult itself means uh, dark things or hidden things. And uh, it's it, it's something that you can't just brush with one stroke, uh, Bill, because some of this is uh, uh, a bunch of hooey. I can use magic as a as an example. That there's people out there that are magicians today. They they go and they have big shows and they pull rabbits out of hats. Mm-hmm. And they make make girls disappear and stuff like that. Uh, technically, if you had asked them, they'd say they're illusionists. They're really not making people disappear or rabbits coming out. They're tricking you and they're using sleight of hand and distraction Mm -hmm. kind of thing. So uh, they themselves would say that there's nothing spiritually going on with this. Uh, But then uh, with that, however, there are those who do uh, associate themselves with occultic practices. Uh, This is uh, uh, the case uh, for, uh, uh, for example, with uh, Within uh, witchcraft, there's a whole uh, uh, um, uh, organized movement, I guess you'd call it, of people who would consider themselves to be Wiccans. And there's uh, all kinds of pages on the on the internet on this, and you can get all kinds of help and everything. But many of them would uh, say that they totally reject anything spiritual. They are very much naturalistic into things like uh, worshiping the earth and uh, uh, being a, a radical environmentalists, some of them. Now, I'm not saying all environmentalists are Wiccans, but uh, many Wiccans are environmentalists in that, and they absolutely reject the the idea of Satan. They they will say Satan is something the church made up. We didn't make that up. Uh, and so they will be atheistic, secularistic, earthbound. Uh, but then there are Satanists out there, and uh, they will uh, – again, uh, this, uh, this sometimes is done as an attention-getting thing. I don't know if you remember the details, Bill, but there were a couple of uh, heavy metal rock groups back in uh, a, a generation prior to us, you know, that had names like Black Sabbath and this, and they uh, pl- pl- uh, they 
portrayed themselves as being satanic and all this kind of thing. I think it was more for show than something okay. real. But there are uh, genuine or uh, I would say self uh, admitting people who do believe in Satan and they do follow him and uh, do things according to the occult of uh, telling the future, uh, doing magical acts, uh, all kinds of things, and mediums, getting in touch with the dead, uh, that type of thing, that there is evidence for this. The Bible took it very seriously, Bill, that whether it was baloney or getting in touch with some of these spiritual forces, it is outright rejected completely by uh, the scriptures. It's in the law of Moses Mm -hmm. that they were to reject any kind of spiritism and that uh, mainly because their connection with the spiritual domain was through their father, uh, the God of Israel, the God of Abraham. And so why settle for cheap substitutes and look for all this in other places when you have a direct line to the creator of the universe who loves you? So uh, this uh, the, the, the scriptures are not ambivalent about this. They are straightforward. Mm-hmm. This is all to be rejected. Uh, should we mess around with that kind of thing then? We just got done with Halloween. Everybody talks about this. Is it something Christians should take part in? Uh, uh, kids sometimes get a real kick if they had a par- have a party, a high school, a junior high party, and they have a seance and they're calling up spirits from the dead and everybody gets the goosebumps and ooh, you know, and all this yeah. kind of thing. Uh, I don't know, Bill. I'm an, I, I'm an old guy. And so I just say, are you really that hard up for excitement? And uh, hmm. I, w- I would stay away from all of Completely. that. Completely. I would There's agree. plenty of reasons to get excited about things. Become a sports fan. All, <laughs> all the Minnesota Viking fans have had a great week. You know? Yeah, they had, did have a good week. Yeah. They, they, they've been having a lot. So go into that. You know, don't sure. leave, leave the tarot cards away Amen. and the Dungeons and Dragons and all this kind of stuff. Uh, you're not that desperate for entertainment. Yeah. All right, Mark, I know you love the Book of Romans, don't you? I do. Yeah, and when it really gets down to the 16th chapter and they start to have all these personal greetings that Paul has by name, seems yeah. like there's like 26 uh, people that he names in the Is Roman it 26? Church. I've never actually added them yeah, up, but I think there's 20, a whole bunch. 26, yeah. and mm-hmm. yet there's no mention of Peter. I don't know if that was an oversight or, or if Peter, or was Peter even there? I mean, I might, know. might not have been. You okay. Know, that this it might have been a little early for Peter that he appears to be uh, located in Rome uh, later in his life. In fact, there's real solid church history, not in the scriptures, uh, but church history uh, tells us that both Paul and Peter were martyred in Rome. Okay in the late 60s of the first century. And so uh, Peter is writing his letters, it appears like, uh, from Rome, but the time and the dates don't seem to line up real well yeah, for well, that. Wasn't Paul in prison around that time, AD 60, right, right around there? And I mean, he, I think Peter was supposed to be the, the bishop at the time. I, I don't know if I know my history well enough to even be making this statement, but I know when Paul was writing letters to Ephesians and Philippians and Colossians and to Philemon during this time, I don't think that Peter's mentioned in any of those books. No, and that's a little earlier. Uh, We can date that. Uh, There's an important date that we work off of when we try to figure this out. And, Bill, it's kind of like a jigsaw puzzle where you don't have all the pieces. I know, I know. So you have to put it together the best you can, but there's still holes in what you're doing. But a really important date is 64, 
of the first century because that's when the emperor Nero, the Roman emperor Nero, started to persecute Christians outright. And it was really bad. A lot of people were imprisoned and suffered and that, and that lasted until about 68 when Nero died. And so Paul probably was in prison before that. Uh, If you remember from the book of Acts, uh, the Jews were creating trouble for Paul, and they wanted to kill Paul in Jerusalem, and Paul was aware of this. So when he was in front of the the Roman governors, um, that he said, I am a Roman citizen, and I appeal my case to Caesar. And uh, the governor said, okay, to Caesar you will go. He had that right to appeal his case to Caesar. So he was sent to Rome, and he was in Rome, uh, it appears, for several years in what sometimes is called house arrest. If you look at the very end of Acts, it said that he had his own rented quarters. People were able to come and go from him, and he had a relative sense of freedom. I guess today we'd say that he was under house arrest in that time. And that's where uh, most scholars will match that time in the late 50s, early 60s, with the the four so-called prison letters of Paul. In all four letters, he talks about being imprisoned. And those four letters are Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. Mm-hmm. And so uh, then, though, it gets a little murky because it appears as though Paul had his audience before Caesar and he was acquitted. He was let go and he was out traveling again until finally he was arrested again, brought back to Rome, uh, this time in a dungeon, though, very, very harsh circumstances. This is probably where he's writing Second Timothy from, is in this uh, dungeon in, in Rome, and he knows he doesn't have long to live. And sure enough, he was killed right about the year 68. Hmm, so good. How can you encourage us to have conviction and remain civil? I I think the world has gotten very uncivil. And I know the author Martin Marty said something that I've kind of tucked away. And he said that people who are good at being civil often lack strong convictions. And people who have strong convictions often lack civility. Oh, that's kind of a a shot across the bow. It kind of is, yeah. 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 Uh, There's so many components to that, Bill, that uh, I think we need to, uh, first of all, maybe step back and just look at our own selves and our relationship to the Lord. That uh, we are content and secure in who we are in Christ. And if somebody insults us or lies about us, makes accusations about us and that, we don't have to get all ruffled by that because actually Jesus and the apostles told us we should expect that kind of treatment. And so a lot of that starts at that point. And if because of that, we can still have great conviction and speak, though, with kindness and with love. We don't have to uh, get caught up in the emotion of trying to defend ourselves. But that's really hard in the day and age we live in. I'm no psychiatrist, Bill, but I think we live in a time now, maybe just in the last 20, 30 years, where uh, we are manipulated as human beings into being very emotional. Things are portrayed in the news and in politics, in world events, in ways that seem to arouse us emotionally. 
And uh, that is something I'm trying to just say to myself, ah, settle down here, boy. You know, you're going to be okay. You don't have to get all worked up about this. A lot of the time it's based on lies or exaggerations or information being left out. And so uh, I think it's a good check. And maybe if you're married, you got a good spouse that can help you check with this, that when you're getting too riled up to just have somebody tap you on the, the wrist or something and say, uh, settle down, boy. You know, <laughs> it, it, yeah. it's, it's okay here. This is uh, you're, you're being played here yeah. to, that uh, if you can get somebody emotional, especially if you get them angry, then uh, they can be manipulated. And that, uh, that, that concerns me. So uh, we have a tremendous op- opportunity in the day and age we live in to speak the truth in love and to speak calmly and reasonably and with kindness toward people. And uh, that's, I, I, I would suggest that's going to stand out as the years continue to go by, Bill. Mm-hmm. And even people who don't believe us uh, or, or agree with us, uh, they're going to see it. Uh, that we're just not uh, we're just not uh, foaming at the mouth about everything and have to take these stands. It's it's a great thing to have solid conviction, but that doesn't mean we have to be brutal in the way that we interact with people. Amen to that. Dr. Mark Muska is my guest, and this segment is called "Ask the Professor." And if I was going to be more specific, it would be text the host, and the host will ask the professor. So let me know I what get question. you in on this too, though. You I, know how to answer these questions too, don't you? No, I, no. Like the yeah. next one coming up is about the war described in Ezekiel 38. So that I can't answer that one. That's that's your department when we come back. Well, we can take a look at it. All right. Uh, so 877-933-2484 is the number to text your question over. Any question that you have, maybe you've had a question for 10 years uh, or maybe something that came up in a Bible study this morning. Get it off your chest. Send it over, 877-933-2484. Let us talk about it. Be right back. It's the Afternoon Show with Bill Arno. Drive time, drive time. Let's get it started. Jump in your car. What's for dinner? Welcome to the show. I hope you've been having a great day. And if you're just climbing in your car, it's uh, an hour with Mark Muska, which is Ask the Professor. I love the Q&A. It gives us all a chance to bring our questions uh, out and say, this is what I've been thinking about. This is what I heard. This is what I'm struggling with. And this is great because, well, Mark can answer just about anything. And if he can't answer it, he'll say, I don't know, which I love about Mark. So, Mark, here's the question about the war described in Ezekiel 37 and 38. Do you believe this is prior to the rapture or post-rapture? Thank you. Yeah, this, uh, it, it, as, as far as figuring out what's happening here, it, uh, you know, it, it's, it's extraordinarily difficult to match this up with either current world events or some future scenario that is going to play itself out. If you, uh, if you read this, it's... It's predicting this time when Israel and Judah will be uh, reunited with one another and uh, the kingdom of David is going to reign. But then in chapter 38, it talks about the nations of the earth gathering against Israel, but then God destroying them and the birds of the air are going to eat the flesh of these mighty kings. Very gory 
hear a description about that. Now, this is something that uh, we have to approach it and say, is this vision to be taken literally talking about some future series of events that are going to take place uh, with these people that are the the nation of Israel, or is it symbolic or, again, allegorical, uh, speaking about God's uh, triumph over the enemies of his people who uh, are—Israel is emblematic of that. And so uh, there's uh, quite a good scholarly debate about this, especially when we get into uh, trying to piece together future events. Uh, You take this here and you line it up against some of the things you can read in the book of Revelation, the last book of the Bible. And it can get pretty in, in, involved uh, to uh, try to sort all of that out. Uh, I like to back away from it, Bill. When I'm uncertain about those kinds of things, I try not to be too uh, 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 strict and and uh, uh, demanding as far as what the the scene is that's being uh, described yeah. by. Uh, uh, by Ezekiel, uh, this has ha- had a special uh, interest, uh, having uh, just to do with what's happened in the last month or so, with everything very explosive now in that region of the world there, where Israel is, and then Lebanon and Syria, uh, Jordan, Egypt, and Iran, not that far away either. So we've got some uh, we've got some real interest in that. Mm-hmm. All right, Mark, here's a question. It says when we die, we will instantly be with God in heaven. But then it says also that if if uh, we die in Christ, we'll be brought up from our graves and meet him in the air at the rapture. Yeah. Explain that to me. Yeah, that's kind of fun. Uh, we try to piece this together too, Bill. Uh, sometimes it's called uh, our existence in the inner intermediate state of existence. And what that is, is what happens to us from our physical death to the time when Christ returns. Uh, What happens to us? Uh, What is our constitution? What are we made up of as uh, uh, followers of Christ who have died? And uh, what's coming next? And the best we can explain this is that uh, we we piece together several passages in in the Scripture— uh, one of them uh, makes it quite clear to see, say, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Mm-hmm. And so when we die, we have this great hope that we have been, uh, we are now with him in this heavenly realm or uh, the the place of, of, uh, of Christ in, in the heavenly places. And we are existing, however, in a non- body or non-material state that uh, the scriptures talk about us having a material body, but then there's an immaterial part of us. We call it our heart, our soul, our spirit, our conscience, uh, our will, uh, several words we use for that. And so we exist in heaven, in this spiritual domain with Christ in this uh, this. Uh, uh, bond with him to be with the Lord, but then uh, that changes when this day comes uh, that Paul talks about in First Thessalonians four, uh, when he he uh, says that there is a day coming when the trumpet of God will sound and the voice of the archangel will shout, 
and uh, there will be a resurrection that takes place. And I'm going to read it here in 1 Thessalonians 4. I think this is one of the best passages to reassure ourselves and comfort one another when we have the death of someone that in Christ, where mm-hmm. they, they have put their trust in the gospel for the forgiveness of sins, and they have died physically. Uh, it's very appropriate to read this. I'm going to read the whole shmeel here for you. It's in 1 Thessalonians 4, starting verse 13, going through verse 18. Paul says, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep. And that word, that's an expression Paul uses for those who've died physically. They are in Christ, so they'll never die eternally. They're going to live eternally, but they're asleep. They've fallen asleep. They've died physically. He says, we don't want you to uh, uh, uninformed about these who've died, that you will not grieve as those of the rest who have no hope. And now listen to what Paul says. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again. Even so, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep, who've died physically in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself would ascend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we shall always be with the Lord. And Paul ends that by saying, therefore comfort one another with these words. So this idea of being caught up, that's where we get the idea of the rapture, Bill. Uh, The word that's used for this caught up, it's where we get the word rapture, rapture from, so that we will be caught up together with those who've died in Christ. And I love the words of reassurance there, he says, and we shall always be in the Lord, with the Lord. But it's, it appears, though, that this is a physical resurrection that takes place, both for these people who've died and our bodies get changed as well at this moment when the trumpet sounds and the shout of the archangel takes place. And so it appears as though we go through all eternity then with a physical body and a non-material part as well, the soul, uh, uh, spirit, conscience, and so forth. That is the way that we live out the rest of our existence for all eternity. Mm, So good. Dr. Mark Mosca is my guest. Ask the professor. Let me know what you have for him. Uh, Mark, let's talk about communion. When Jesus says, do this in memory of me, question has come in, why do we have Holy Communion, and why do some churches not allow everyone to partake? Oh, that's a couple good questions. Yeah, I agree. Oh, I'm writing this out, and so I don't forget. If I forget some of this, just remind me. Well, you're retired, so you have permission to forget. Yep, that's right. Well, this is something that is given to us to remember the significance of the death of the Lord, that uh, Christ died, and that was tragic, to say the least, but he died purposely. It wasn't just some tragedy where things got out of control and his followers weren't strong enough to stop it, and so they arrested him and crucified him and and killed him. Uh, that uh, his his death was purposeful, and that's what he wants us to remember. So uh, here again, I'm just going to read the passage. Is that okay, Bill? Cause Please, yeah. This is better than my words, where uh, this is read very often when churches celebrate the Lord's Supper or Holy Communion. Uh, It's in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Paul 
explains the significance of the Lord's Supper. And in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three, he says, For I received from the Lord that which I delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Explicitly there. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And if I can unpack that a little bit, Bill. Yes. When he says, this is my body, which is for you. Uh, Other versions of this say, which is broken for you. This is Jesus dying in our place. We don't have to die for our sins. The wages of sin is death. And either we die for our own sins or the great substitute dies in our place. And that's what he's saying. This bread is something for you to remember that I died in your place so you can be forgiven. Do this in remembrance of me. Never forget it. It wasn't just a tragedy. It wasn't just an example of selfless love. This was the sacrifice that made it possible for you to be forgiven. That's just wonderful. And then the cup, he explains in verse 25, he says, this is the the cup is the new covenant in my blood. That must have made the apostles' ears just ring. (laughs) that one statement. Yeah. Yeah. That is a whopper. Yeah. Because if they knew their Old Testament, they know that the new covenant is explained in Jeremiah 31, verses 31 through 34. And the writer of Hebrews quotes those verses in Hebrews chapter 8, so nobody misses it in the New Testament, where it says that a day is coming when God will write his law upon our heart and everyone will know him. And then he says at the end of it, and their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Mm-hmm. Your sin- sins will be forgiven. So wow. Jesus says, this is it. This yeah. is the new covenant. And then he says, and it's in my blood. Yeah. You, you tell me, Bill, you know enough about this. What? How was a covenant ratified? How was a covenant put into place? I'm going to save my answer till after the break. That's called a cliffhanger. Oh. All right. We're talking to Dr. Mark Muska. Ask the professor, 877-933-2484. We'll be right back. Faith Radio and Afternoons with Bill podcasts are available because of listener support. If you are a supporter, thank you so much. Becoming a supporter today by visiting myfaithradio.com. I'm back with my friend, Dr. Mark Muska. It's Ask the Professor, and you're not going to believe, Mark, what happened during the break. Wyatt, my producer, begged me that he could be the one to answer that question and oh, not me. Oh, man. Don't the, listen. The new, no, no. This don't is, don't <laughs> listen to him, Mark. He's the, trying the to get out of it. The producer wants to get in here. Okay, yeah, he does. So. <laughs> no, he's, yeah. try, he's trying to get out of it, Mark, and I'm not going to let him. Oh, uh, yeah. Well, let's see. Maybe we should have it written on a secret ballot. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe you would answer your own question. I can do it. Okay. Yeah. Thank you, Mark. Yes. That how were covenants ratified in the Old Testament? They were ratified through sacrifice and in blood. Yeah. And so look what Jesus says. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. I am bringing the new covenant into play now through my blood so there's changed hearts and forgiveness of sins. Man, 
that is just awesome. And I'm so glad he said, as often as you drink it, do this in remembrance of me. We're never to forget why Jesus died, for our sin to be forgiven, our hearts to be changed, and for us to be able to follow God. That's worth a yip-yip and a hallelujah. Yeah, amen. Here's an interesting question posed to both of us. What, which question would you both want to ask Jesus first? Okay, you go first. Why me? Because. Why me? I'm thinking. No, no, no. I'm saying that's what I'd say to Jesus. Why me? Oh, you're saying that to him. Yeah, <laughs> not yeah. to you. I'm saying I, it to I, him. Why do you, I, you have to go first? No, no. Why Why me? Yeah. Yeah, that you, that you poured out your love on me. Why me? Thank you. Yeah. I don't know, Bill. I've got a gazillion I know. questions. But you know what? I think if we do get to stand face to face with the Lord Jesus, I don't think I'm going to be able to say anything. I love that song that came out. Wasn't it Mercy Me that put it out a few years ago, you know, of about uh, what will I do when I'm with Jesus? Will I sing? Will I fall on my knees? Right. I, I can only imagine is the name of that song. And so I just leave it. Uh, I think we get to, so into all these questions, and it's great having questions. I'm glad these listeners have questions. That's the pathway of learning and growth in the knowledge of your of your salvation. Yeah. Uh, but, boy, you know, the, I don't know if we're going to be interested in bringing our list of 384 questions that we got for Jesus. Yeah, I'm with you on that, Mark. I was just trying to be polite and answer the question, but I think you're right. I'm going to be so awestruck and speechless that I'm just going to love being simply in his presence. Well, to be freed from the sin nature, to have Satan judged and no longer messing around with us, and to have the world, uh, you know, pass away, uh, boy, I just, I just, uh, I like to imagine stuff like that. I can only imagine, you know? Yeah. Uh, what are we going to be able to do? What are we going to say? How are we going to relate to one another? Think of the fellowship of those who belong to Jesus for all time. I think I might look up some of these people in history. Wouldn't it be fun to talk with Abraham for a oh, while? Completely fun, yeah. And uh, the disciples and all this. Oh, man. it's just You and I, fun. we can take Abraham to lunch someday in heaven. How about that? Wow. Sounds like a plan to me. Yeah. Looks like a good time. All right, Mark, a question came in. It's a longer question, so I'm going to try to capsulize it. But you know the game telephone where it keeps getting information, gets passed on and gets passed on and gets passed on. How is God's word not a little bit like that? And can we really trust that what we have is what was intended? Yeah, I think that's especially important when you start talking about uh, the first writing of all of this, that... uh, these apostles, you know, they they wrote this uh, about Jesus and about salvation, and this is uh, this is something. You know, how did they did they remember it right as they heard things? Luke says he he examined things carefully and looked into all of this diligently about Jesus and about what he did. And did they get it right, or as things were passed on, uh, did they uh, did there be errors that uh, that uh, snuck in there? And uh, the best. The best way that I can approach that, Bill, is to say that these apostles were not left to themselves and the prophets in the Old Testament, that God makes it clear 
that he himself is working in them. The prophets, Bill, one of the distinguishing characteristics of the prophets was that the Spirit of God came upon them, and he worked through them so that we have confidence what they wrote was accurate. And in the same way, the apostles, Jesus gives them this commission as his apostles that what they taught was true because the Spirit was guiding us. Uh, one of my favorite passages that describes this is uh, Peter talking in Second Peter two, Second uh, Peter one, uh, verses nineteen and uh, nineteen through twenty-one, where he says, "So we." The apostles, us in this age, we have the prophetic word made more sure in which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. Now listen to what he says, though. But know this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Doctrinally, Bill, we call this the inspiration of the Scriptures, that the very words of Scripture are inspired by God, and he worked in perfect harmony with these human authors so that what they wrote we can rely on. We don't have to have all kinds of questions like that telephone game. Mm-hmm. So we're just about out of time, Mark. We have about a minute left, which gives me just enough time to ask you how your adorable grandkids are doing. Hey, we're doing great. Yeah. I just, I, I laughed today. I saw on social media, they had a video of huh. these two boys that probably were about the age of my um, grandchildren. They're eight, six, and four. And it showed them with one of these flip-up uh, kitchen uh, dis- uh, uh Waste baskets, yeah. metal ones. Yeah. And the, the one was stepping on the pedal, and the thing came up and whapped the other one right in the face. <laughs> and they laughed, and they laughed, and they laughed about that. Yeah. I just, I, I just posted there to say, sounds like my three grandsons. Oh, right hilarious! There, you know? Yeah, we have so much fun. They are so fun. It, it's a, a breath of wonderful fresh air to just be around them. Yeah, fantastic, Mark. Thanks for spending time with me. I always look forward to having you on, and I appreciate. Your wisdom and uh, your friendship. You bet. Anytime, Bill. It's always a great time. Thanks so much. Mm -hmm. Dr. Mark Musk has been my guest. That's our show for the day. Thank you so much. If you missed any of the show, go to myfaithradio.com. Check out the podcast. I look forward to seeing you tomorrow. Lots of guy talk coming up. That's all tomorrow. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at myfaithradio.com.